All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show we have Dana Colley. You might know him from his work with uh, Morphine, The Twinemen, or his most recent project, Vapors of Morphine. Dana is a saxophone player, multi-instrumentalist, who's continuously making new, innovative music. Um, I first became aware of the band Morphine while spending some time in Boston. No, Northampton. In Northampton with uh, Calling All Crows for their 5K. They do it every October, or did until the pandemic. And um, you'd get in costume, you'd run around it, all the money would go towards a good cause. And afterwards, there'd be a show. State Radio would play a show. So State Radio, being a, a spawn-off group from the band Dispatch, led by Chadwick Stokes, they started a nonprofit called Calling All Crows that would do all these awesome service projects before and after shows. So... We did the 5K. We're all hanging around, waiting for the show. And it starts to snow really bad. It was snowing during the 5K, but it starts getting really, really bad. And uh, I'm hanging out in a cafe, and I meet this guy, and we start trading stories from where are you from and what do you do. He also played music. And he's like, you know what? You need to check out Morphine. You need to check out this band. It's a band made of three guys. One guy plays slide bass, and there's a baritone sax, and it's all beats Esque uh, lyrics and poetry. I'm like, all right, that sounds cool. I made a note of it, and then we went to the show. And it snowed so bad that the block le- lost power, right? And there was no, the, 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 the whole venue was shut down. So everyone, there was like a line around the block. And what was cool about this moment was um, the band, Dispatch came out, not Dispatch, State Radio came out, and they performed for the people in the line. And they did like a mini acoustic performance. And there was, um, who was it, Brett Dutton? He also came out and did a few tunes. It was really, that was even cooler maybe than the than the show. Um, so they did like a mini acoustic concert. And everyone shivered through the whole thing and then went home. And when I got back to Cleveland, I dove into this band Morphine. And it was before Spotify times, and like at least for me. So I went through um, record CD diving and found it. And then like that band blew my mind. I love when an innovative instrument like Mark's two-string guitar bass makes this whole this whole new genre of music, and not to not for a gimmick, but for this, uh, but in the sense of just pure expressiveness. And maybe maybe it's a guitar player thing, and like that's what really drew me into it. But after after you listen to like Good or Cure for Pain, you're like, there's the songwriting and the the uniqueness of the group. Um, and this became one of my favorite bands, this morphine became one of my favorite bands and I would go deep dives into their music for months on end then get back out and then get back in. And, um, it came on my radar, uh, it came across my radar that, um, Dana was, had this project called Vapors of Morphine. And I kind of dove down into the history of, well, what happened after morphine and what are these guys doing? And, uh, the new record fear and fantasy is incredible now this is like you're getting like the, no matter what when you hear dana play you get that morphine tone but here's like that applied to all these different genres which when you listen to the night it seems like they were kind of inching into um but fear in fear and fantasy takes it to a whole nother level it goes from eastern music to blues music to country music and like to mambo music i can't recommend um, fear and fantasy enough. We're going to listen to one track. Uh, 
Fantasy, Vampires and Morphine, available on all streaming platforms. I also recommend checking out the videos um, from Vapors of Morphine on their YouTube channel. There's a really rad live performance of Baba Drama under this bridge, and it's like echoing through the through the, the cavernous bridge. It's really rad. They have one show on the books as of now, um, so check out VaporsMorphine.com for all the updates. If you're new to the show, I play in a band called C-Level, letter C-Level. Um, we're playing a gig... April 29th at the Beachland Ballroom with the Quasi Kings. This was an honor chatting with Dana. His music profoundly affected me and opened up new perspectives in my mind that I didn't see possible. Knowing that instruments that on paper or in register should not work together, shouldn't be muddy and conflicting, can work together in harmony and can make this space that is unlike any others is profoundly inspiring. So this was a complete honor to have this chat. I'm very excited to share it with you. But before we get to that, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool artists and find an insight to share with you. Now, with that being said, here's my conversation with Dana. Uh, me and Dana did this interview before Billy Conway's passing. Within this interview, me and Dana speak on Billy's presence and the kind of enlightenment he brought to the people around him. So I wanted to take a moment to send some thoughts and prayers to the Conway family. Baba, uh, Baba Dom, Drum, oh, yeah. Drum, okay. Drum. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that track rips. And it's what's so cool, and I, in noticing how, we, how you approach a song like that, is like um, on the track, it's almost like you're the bass player in this case. Right. And, um, which makes sense because of the physicality of the instrument. But uh, to kind of like pick apart maybe like um, your approach to sax playing, is that kind of, did you see the sax more of a, as a like a, a guitar or a, or a bass guitar like when approaching projects like Vapors and Morphine or Morphine? Uh, well, you know, the thing about Vapors is that, which makes it a little bit different from Morphine, is that um, I'm using a lot of effects uh, that would be considered guitar effects. I play my baritone. I've, I've got a pickup on my mouthpiece that then goes into a series of effects that allows me to be able to get certain guitar sounds and I play through an amplifier. Um, so in, in, ca in cases like this, Jeremy and I often will switch uh, the bass roll. So I'll I use a, an octaver device where I can get a lower sound happening and a, a more of a bass bass tone, and I'll I'll play the bass line and let Jeremy take off on the on the lead. And this is a this that song is a is a, uh, it's a good example of uh, of that approach. Cool, as a, like because uh, like also like noticing like um, I, with your approach to doing the double sax. Like in playing two like two lines at one time, that's mind blowing. Are you are you hip to Roland Kurt? Like how'd you? Uh... Of course, yeah. yeah Last okay. on Roland Kurt, yeah. Of course, he he played three at once at times, and yeah. he actually sort of created a couple instruments from my understanding from a dream that he had. It, the Stritch and the Manzello, which were kind of uh, hybrids of uh, of a tenor alto, but having it elongated more like a soprano and you know roland kirk was also blind and his 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 real sensory uh, relationship with sound was probably you know far more advanced than most people maybe as a result of being blind but that i'm um, sort of being a focus for him 
I think he heard sounds and was kind of attracted to the idea of, of pushing the envelope, obviously. And so he's, he best, he pioneered that, the idea of playing more than one sax at a time. And, uh, in his ability to do it was, was, was just jaw dropping because he was able to play, you know, intersecting lines and different, you know, configurations. Um, I think he even had certain keys, um, soldered on his horn that allowed him to access uh, more of the horn with one hand whereas in typically you need both hands to to get any note lower than like a, a g on the horn and so he was able to get the full range of the horn just with one hand or, or a large part of it so that gave him a lot more um, uh, selection to use in terms of his note selection my my approach to that was basically just pick up a tenor and <clears throat> play it uh, with one hand and then the barry on the other hand and just just to see what would happen and see what what um, what notes work together, what notes were harmonizing, what what notes weren't, and then Mark um, basically wrote a song around wrote a couple of songs around what the limitations of that was basically because it is very limiting limiting. And uh, it's not as hard as it looks either. It's it's like if you could pick up, you know, think about taking two, you know, recorders and blowing through it, you're going to get two sounds and you just basically, it's basically a very similar approach. Because huh. it seems like, well, just uh, getting the right, like, amateur with a, with a sax or being able to get your tone, like, uh, coming from, like, a, a string player, a guitar player, like, that concept is so bizarre to me, right? That like mm -hmm. it, there's so much more going on to the approach with with the mouth, um, even before a note comes out, in which defines a lot of people's tones. So to be able to like mm -hmm. try to think of okay, you can do that twice seems really complicated. But is it so? It's not. <laughs> well, it's it, it doesn't. It's not that. It depends on the reads. You know, if you're if both horns are, are complementing you with uh, with good reads, then then you're you're in good shape to start with. But I mean, it is the configuration, getting the tuning right, so that they both are in tune. Uh, it it can take some adjustment. It's essentially just a sort of a, a series of adjustments that kind of allow you to do that. But for the most part, it's a uh, it's very simple idea and approach. That's cool. That's super cool. Like it makes sense how that would be limiting because you're you're splitting your attention. Like you can only do so much as one as one individual. But um, is, so is that something you tried in morphine for the first time, or were you dabbling before? Uh, you know, I, I think goofing around. You, you had more than one horn line around. I think uh, I can remember trying it as a kid just to see. I don't know where I'd seen it before, but trying it just to see what it what it sounded like and kind of laughing and then you know. And that was it. It was kind of a circus act, a cir circus trick. But it was I, when Mark suggested it, I was I, I kind of laughed it off. And but he was he was pretty serious about it. So it was actually his idea that I that I do it. And then and he, we kind of created the music around it. Because hmm. it's interesting, like the comparison with a. Uh, I didn't know Roland Kirk's um, um, background with that, like how it came to a dream. And but like just with the whole Morpheus and the dream approach with morphine and like the idea that like Mark's inventing his own instruments and like so is a uh, Roland Kirk and to kind of influence that together. That's really cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that myself. That's that's interesting. Yeah, because uh, so it's an interesting crossover because it's with with the simplicity of 
how you guys were just this three piece and you're able to make this space and like to fill it in with like double sacks and kind of being able to expand like that, but to even have it like on the kind of philosophical level, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's uh, well, if you, it, I'll let you, if you want to summarize it like that, I think for us, it was, what does it sound like? You know, what, yeah. the sound, the sounds cool, you know, and let's, let's, let's work with this. This will be fun. So like when you started playing in the scene, cause you started with like recorder and clarinet, right? I did. I started uh, in the third grade on recorder. We called them tonettes back in that day. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, you, you, everybody got one in the third grade and we all converged in a large, uh, chorus kind of setting and played hot cross buns on mass. And that was the, that was the beginning of, of, of my, uh, relationship with that kind of conical instrument. And then in the fourth grade, uh, band instruments were introduced and you were, if you wanted to, you could sign up and learn to play an instrument. And uh, for some reason, I gravitated to clarinet. It makes and sense. Later sax. Yeah. It makes sense. It did at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, because you you dabble with everything, you play bits of everything. Is there like, was it because of the basis of kind of like clarinet and recorder that like sax and instruments like uh, reed instruments were easier to convey, or did yeah. that just resonate more? Well, after you've learned clarinet, playing a saxophone is 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 like taking the weights off. If you if you were training with heavy weights and then you took like huh. twenty pounds off, it would feel really light. It's sort of a similar thing where, you know, uh, saxophone is is so much more ergonomic, um, and it's so much easier to play than the clarinet. And the thing that the, the saxophone has, which is uh, automatically makes it easier, is that it has um, octave. Uh, so if you're playing a note in one octave uh the only thing you have to do is press this one little key and you and that same note is now an octave higher mm. which the clarinet doesn't work that way there it has registers and the same key that you would press to get an octave on the saxophone um, actually doesn't produce an octave it produces i don't even know what it is but <clears throat> it makes it very hard to to have that kind of uh flexibility and uh um dexterity i guess you might say so the saxophone just becomes easier immediately if you if you start with clarinet because huh. I've, I've heard <laughs> the fingerings are the same but that makes sense right. with an octave jump that's way <laughs> yeah um... yeah and all if you can play one saxophone you can play them all they're all basically the same the same setups okay is it like a so kind of a, do you do, do you like that uh, um that feat or that uh that challenge of trying to make um one instrument be able to convey however you want it mm. uh well it's interesting yeah it's a good question um you know each instrument has its own little quirks and idiosyncrasies you know it, it, almost every instrument you could have 10 guitars in a room and each one will have something different to offer something different about it that makes it unique and i, I find that to be true with almost every instrument and you could have 10 baritone saxophones and each one will have its own little thing um, but you know, in in that case, if if you're you know you're recording and you say, hey, I really hear um, something that is not what I'm using here. What can I use that would get this across? And so you have a range of saxophones at your disposal. Let's say it needs more of a 
you know, fluid sound needs more to be higher. What? Okay, let's try the alto. Let's try the soprano. Let's see what this does. Let's see what this sounds like, or or not, or try something else. You know, um, I think just I've always enjoyed kind of uh, what each instrument has to offer, in you know, not necessarily, you know, the character, the category of the instrument, but the actual instrument itself. What is it? What's inside this thing? That that's what's where's the magic in this instrument? You know, each right. each instrument has one. It's beautiful. And, uh, <laughs> well, it okay. is. It is because everyone is slightly different. And like, if it's the wood or how it's this one set up, well, this one it's set up so it buzzes when you hit that note, and that could be a yeah. cool. Or just this one string or whatever. Or that, or especially with like a horn, like that's well, you know, that's crafted in, in entirely pro profound way compared to like a guitar. I can fathom someone whittling a guitar. I can't really picture that pounding out of a horn um, yeah yeah no i mean all the, well you think about the um raw materials that go into making a, a horn you know and my baritone was made in the 1930s and that to the particular type of raw material they used that time was you can't you can't come up with it you know it doesn't exist anymore right and that's i think that's part of the reason why vintage instruments are so uh, sought after because of the, the materials they had to work with at the time Right. And like, well, and, and it's just kind of, it's got more experience in a way. There's more, more of a vibe to it, I guess. And like, and like mm -hmm. a lot of, I feel like a lot of older ones are built, especially maybe it's like my amp brain thinking like a lot of those amps are made to be repaired. So I'd imagine a lot of older instruments are made to hold up to some degree. That could be totally well, false too. Yeah. But I no, I think you're, I think you're right. There's a certain craftsmanship and worksmanship where people, you know, I think of a certain era built things to last, you know, where, you know, you get later on and things are built to have obsolescence, you know, and I think early, early craftsmanship of instruments and, you know, especially guitars and saxophones, horns of that nature had a real um, pride in workmanship, I think. So after experimenting and finding your like ability to express with an instrument, when did it become a way to convey yourself? Like when did music become your outlet? Because I know mm -hmm. uh, your your dad was a cartoonist, right? And still is, yeah. And still yeah. is. And like yeah. so you you went to art school and like that was gonna be your medium, but when when was the shift? Yeah, it it occurred in art school, I think, you know. Um I always think about the saxophone as something that I had and carried with me, but, uh, you know, I sort of, I went on, but it never left me, you know, kind of hung on to me in a weird way. Cause after high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do much like, much like anybody right? No one that knows. age. <laughs> right. And I went to an art school because I really didn't know what else to do. My dad was an artist and is an artist. And I thought, well, maybe we can, you know, start a design company when I come out of this, if I, I'll go into illustration and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, have, we'll start a company, but it didn't work out that way. I, I couldn't hack illustration. I didn't have the, the, the skill or I didn't have the discipline to, you know, to be uh, a great illustrator. And I kind of floated through the various departments at mass art and wound up, um, in a performance art department called Studio French Related Media. They call it SIM for short. Hmm. And this was a place where you could pretty much do anything. If you, all you needed to do to pass was to show up and to present 
each semester a piece of your own creation. And it was it was kind of here that I that I got back into sound as a medium and uh, didn't nece not necessarily the saxophone, but the idea of sound as as art. And uh, and so I really got into recording and there was a sound studio there and I was influenced by some sound artists who were older than me. This guy Rick Wolf was a big influence on me and he would make you know, these sound um, scapes, these sound environments and, you know, tape loops and, you know, recording stuff that was, you, you, you always, ears are always perked up to, to hear what sounds were out there that you might want to record to introduce into some piece. And it really opened up my mind to, to the world of uh, art and the world of sound and, and, and really starting to listen differently for the first time. And, um, this was also in the eighties in Boston and there was a lot of, a lot of things were going on. There was like post-punk and everybody was in a band and everybody, uh, you know, was out seeing shows or going to galleries. It was very fertile. And I, my saxophone was something I was able to kind of gave, gave me an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, take part in some of these things. And I would take it to jam sessions and at school and, slowly started getting back into playing the, the instrument and when I realized I really didn't I hadn't really studied it as well as I probably should have and kind of immersed myself into trying to um, practice and, and try to get better on the horn and focus on the horn as much as I could and that was uh, kind of a, the beginning of uh, what I've been trying to do ever since <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because the, the first uh, the first track off the new record it's got that kind of soundscape, that like intro to the dream mm -hmm. type deal. Oh yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's inter it's it's that's really interesting that you had this appreciation for the kind of sonicscape like that and like soundscape and because of that that that's kind of like the eventually you study all the complicated all this madness stuff to zone out to appreciate one note in a way. So it was almost like you started mm. at the end in, in in a sense, you know. That's mm. that's really fascinating. Um, so when you dove back into attempting the, to, uh, hone your chops on the sax, like what, what, what did that look like? Was that like learning songs? Was that like learning, learning phrases or like ways to fit in with groups or just like, Hey, let's jam. All of those things. I think about all of the above, you know, uh, learning to jam, learning to, you know, do what would make whatever the song was work. You know, try to work from that perspective, letting the song breathe, letting it, but you're working with a singer, songwriter, allowing space for the vocals to come through and just trying to, you know, learn ways in which to, to accompany um, what was happening at the time and, and developing your ear, developing your ability to hear what the notes are and, or even anticipate certain forms, you know, so that you can kind of understand where it was going while it was happening. Uh, and but that took a development on the horn to be able to increase my vocabulary and to be able to uh, to get to a place where I knew where the notes are were you know on the horn I could hear it in my head and I knew where it was and I could find it was sort of an instantaneous sort of uh, summoning of of the sound and that took um, and it still takes uh, time you know to for me I picked up my saxophone at this, this um, sax shop in Boston. It was called Ray Burns. And the guy who did all the repairs there and sold the horns is this guy, Emilio Lyons, who sold me my first horn. And uh, I would go in there and just kind of hang out and 
listen to the, you know, guys like Kenny Garrett who would practice and come in there and, you know, Stan Getz would come in when he was in town and Emilio had all these pic- pictures of these great saxophone players all from all over the, you know, all over his wall, all over the, the world from, you know, all eras of, of jazz. And it was quite a Mecca. And I happened to be in able to just go and walk in and uh, the, I was a kid. They'd let me hang out and they kind of, you know, so they laughed at me a little bit, I think, because I, I, I sucked pretty bad. But they they never discouraged me, you know. And one day I was in there and this guy came in and I was just asking him, you know, well, what do you do? You know, how do you, you know, what what should I do? What should I work on? And he handed me this book that he had had or he had picked up or something. And I don't know where it was Oliver Nelson's saxophone exercises. And it was it was already stain the color coffee brown you know it had been <laughs> yeah it had it, it aged remarkably and i still i still have that book and that has been my my bible in a way because it, it allowed me to kind of understand the vocabulary of the instrument and what relationships notes have to each other and chordal relationships and patterns and that sort of thing and being able to build up a um, kind of a, a muscle memory of, of what the saxophone what those relationships are and to start thinking less linearly uh in terms of note after note but more in a chordal sense like uh there was a great guy uh he's a bouncer at the the rat in boston uh, his name was mitch and mitch had had throat cancer at one point so his vocal cords had been removed and he talked through uh, a vocal order kind of thing where he held yeah. it up to his neck and he you know he sounded like this you know, yeah, yeah. You know like that and he happened to be this amazing baritone saxophone player in the in in the 30s and 40s. Hmm. And one day we're down there having a rock show, and the sound guy is, is setting up the sound system, and he's running the he's doing a check with the the PA, and this amazing baritone sax solo comes through the PA. And I said, "Well, man, who's that?" He goes, "That's that's Mitch, the same guy who's the bouncer." He, you know, Mitch would stand in a suit and tie, and he had this hair that looked like a Brillo pad, like gray white hair. And he looked like he would break you in half with his, with his you know, if, <laughs> yeah. if he wanted to. Just incredibly intimidating in his appearance, uh, which served well as a bouncer at the Rat. But he was the sweetest, sweetest, sweetest man in the world. And so I went up and said, hey, Mitch, you know, and I was just kind of shaking because, you know, he's someone I wouldn't approach otherwise. I said, man, I just heard your tracks down there sound great. And he was, uh, he was like, ah, yeah, I'm going to listen to you too. Something like that. And. I said, well, can you give me some advice? What do, what do I need to know? And he goes, chords. I said, yeah, chords. Learn a chord a day, he said. Huh. Learn, learn a chord a day. And the, the thought had never occurred to me that a saxophone, you could approach it in a chordal idea, you know, that, that the culmination of three notes and, you know, right. uh, could produce a chordal effect. And, and to start thinking phrasing as as uh, in terms of a chordal approach as opposed to just a linear approach. So these little 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 kind of you know moments of of being in the right place at the right time and getting advice that really you know stuck. And I I was a kid who wanted to absorb and I was absorbing everything all the time. And I really was fortunate enough to be around a lot of people who were had a lot of experience and were uh, kind enough to to take the time with me. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Expect at one to have the person for them as well having someone to share that information with. 
And when you want to seek it, if you're tr actively trying to seek it, you're going to find yourself in that right place. But uh, that's a that's an interesting uh, position for for him to be a bouncer at a music club. That might be kind of like, you know, as a guy who was like ripping on baritone, that might be kind of like a bummer in a way to kind of always remind yourself. So I think that says a lot about his character that he was there. And, and kind of embrace, you know, took that gig, like even though he's like an yeah. intimidating dude that could that he could serve that part, you know. But um, no, he was he was beloved and res well respected by everybody, and you know he was a bouncer for a pretty raucous punk club, which was renowned. And he didn't, from what I understood or saw, he never had to never had to step in on anything. All he had to do was stand there, and, and everybody behave themselves, you know. And it with the. Um, the idea of chords, because like thinking of a saxophone, like on piano or like guitar or something, you can see that linear, right? And you can mentally see when you're not being linear. So to think of it like, because chords open up when you're following something, that's that's the bits you want to follow. You want to follow the chord tones, because you can, like how you said, make some really beautiful right. phrases. So that's like golden advice. Really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It kind of, kind of shifted my whole perspective for sure. Yeah, and it's something because a lot, a lot of, a lot of music schools scales and arpeggios and working on notes and stuff. But kind of thinking of it, I, I don't even know chords are or arpeggios are chords attended mm -hmm. to in a specific pattern, like um, linear. It's thinking of it like that 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 opens up the the um, the canvas. Um, mm -hmm. When did a uh, when did three colors happen? Uh, Three Colors was, they, I joined the band in like, I want to say 82 or something like that. And they, they had formed in Connecticut College in the early 80s and then uh, moved up to Boston. And uh, one of the, the one of the uh, singers, guitar players, Chris Harford, was going to Mass Art. And that's, we became friends and uh, he invited me to join them at a party that uh, Mass Art and I got up. It was like one of the first times I'd ever been played with a band and just did this sort of James Chance kind of complete, you know, throttle the the, the chicken kind of thing <laughs> and uh, on a song and then just stepped down and it was like the biggest thrill of my life. And I, I called them up the next day. I said, so you guys, when are you going to practice again? And, you know, they're like, well, we're not really practicing right now. We don't have any shows. Check back in a couple of weeks or something. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have something. So I call back and you guys are practicing again? No, no, we're not practicing. And you know, I I kept calling and kept calling, and eventually I think they just got tired of me bugging them, and they said, "Okay, we're going to rehearse just because we just we can't stand to have you keep asking us anymore." And we went in, and they and I, I just invited myself in, and latched on because the idea of being in a band was seemed to be the where I wanted to be because there was so much to to learn, and both the three singer songwriters in this band hub hub Moore, max Moore, and chris harford um i i was fascinated with it with with their abilities to sing and play and come up with these songs and these ideas and um so i would sort of sit at their feet and just sort of try to absorb as much as i could and uh and began to learn how to how to work in a band and how to accompany a songwriter and really got my uh sort of sort of you know, what's the word? Got my teeth. What's the what's something in the uh, teeth? Uh, cutting your chops. Uh, yeah, cut, yeah. <laughs> Sound like grinding, grinding my chops. Yeah, I don't know whatever it was, but whatever phrase we want to. 
Cut my teeth on Cut that your one, teeth. I guess. There it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, a- yeah, and that was uh, that went on till about 86. We we got a great review and an NME and decided we we're going to move to England, which was just harebrained, the whole concept. The guy who wrote the article, this guy's name is Tony Fletcher. We called him up and said, you're going to manage us. And he said, but, but, but I'm not, you know, he said, no, you're going to manage us. We're coming. We find us a house. We're, we're not, we're on our way. He didn't have a chance to say no. And, uh, <laughs> and before you knew it, we were, we were in, in, in South London, you know, in a flat and our, we thought we'd, we thought we we're on our way. Cause our first gig was opening up for Billy Bragg at the, uh, Whoa, uh Fulham, nice. yeah, you, you know, yeah. Fulham palace grounds. He was such a kind guy and, and, and allowed us to kind of, he nurtured, nurtured us a little bit. I'm not sure how we ran into him, but he had us warm up for him and we thought we were on our way, but, um, as fate would have it, um, our record label went bankrupt, which was called Making Waves. And they, so our British label that was going to distribute all of our records went into bankruptcy, which meant all of our records were held in escrow in some warehouse. We had no access to our records, couldn't sell them. Our booking agent went into the hospital with an illness and he was unable to work. So we didn't have any gigs. You know, so we were sitting rotting in this house in West Norwood, England waiting for the phone to ring, running out of money and uh, eating cheese sandwiches and, you know, condiment, uh, pasta. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it was one of those experiences where we, we had a few gigs here in London and we went, we somehow managed to get two gigs in Germany where we drove a car and a van onto a ferry and drove over and played two disastrous shows in Germany and came back and, and uh, by that time, there was tension in the band, and <laughs> Chris had moved up into the attic and took a mattress and slapped it across a couple of rafters and called it his room. And it was just the writing was on the wall that this uh, that he, everybody kind of wanted to go their separate ways. And so that was the end of that, pretty much. Damn, that escalated quickly, like yeah, yeah, six months. It, it, I think you know, six months of waiting for something to happen, and 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 you know, sort of other tensions that I think each person wanted to kind of have more of their own, uh, thing going. And, uh, so that, that sort of dissolved and that's, we came back from England and that's when, uh, I had met Mark previous when they were, he was with his band, Peter Wright. But when I got back to Boston, we started hanging out and he was working on a, on his two string. And that's when we met and I brought my baritone over and we played a little bit in his room. And it was like one of these eureka moments. We were like, okay, this, this, this is here. We, we got a sound here. And soon after that, we had Jerome, you know, we got a whole Jerome Dupree. We went into Jerome's rehearsal space and started rehearsing for what would become the first record. Good. And it all kind of just happened pretty quickly. It's amazing how quickly you can roll, like, that, that, how all that rolls. When did, um, but when did the touring with a uh, treater write? like helping them out on tour was that oh, yeah. before uh that was guys... before okay yeah yeah that was before three colors went to england and uh my good friend paul richards was their sound that was their guitar tech and he was moving on to greener pastures and he kind of threw me the gig because we were friends I, with the band i was a big fan of the band and so they agreed to take me on as a guitar tech guitar roadie and my job was to drive the van with a sound engineer, Philip, Phil Davidson. We got the gear to the gig, set it up, tune the guitars, and 
if there was something happening on stage, our job was to get up there and fix it. But in many cases, um, my abilities were um, were far less than were required. And, or and in other words, I would I, I sucked at being a guitar tech. And they eventually had me come up and join them on stage because it was it was I was a better sax player than a guitar tech. <laughs> That's awesome. That'd be hard to guitar tech's a tough gig. You know, it why is. is it buzzing? I don't know. I gotta man, yeah. going around the country and all the like atmospheric stuff changing the tension oh, yeah. on the wood. <laughs> you gotta know oh, the there was, math, yeah. you know. Oh my god. I would hand I would hand David Champagne his guitar thinking I tuned it. And he'd play it, and then it would be completely out of tune. He'd look at me, you know, like shake his head, like "What the fuck?" <laughs> I said, "Well, I don't know. I thought I tuned it. Sorry, you know." And then Mark, Mark would go, "Something's wrong with my amp. My amp's not working." And I'd go up there, and I'd look like I'd look looking around and see if I could find anything, and you know, and he'd be like, "It's not working." I was like, "Yeah, well, I don't know. What am I supposed to do?" You know, <laughs> it's like. I, it's like I, I don't know how to fix that shit. You know, <laughs> it's your ramp. You figure it out. Just kick it, right? <laughs> yeah, kick it. I got hit it with a hammer. Man, that's that's so much moving, though. You know, to be on tour with those guys, then to go across the pond and have that whole experience, and then like the you know, what I mean, like that's a lot of like not being in the same place. So like having a chance to kind of work on like. Uh, morphine as a group and like get that started was that kind of a, a sense of home musically and like geographically oh that's a geez that's a very thoughtful question uh i hadn't really given that much thought i mean you know you're in your 20s and mid-20s there's nothing better than getting on the road and going somewhere right. doesn't matter where you know yeah. so if there was some place to go we wanted to go there it, it the idea of home was wherever you're you know you lay your head down at night for the most part um, Boston always was home, you know, and that's why I think we always came back because familiarity of our of the venues and of our friends, and you know, you could always just feel like, you know, you had a you had a, some kind of uh, grounding here. Uh, but you know, it, it, I, I th at that time, I think, you know, we were so hungry to to make something happen. Home is a place to be nurtured and to nurture things, but with the with the idea and the ambition to get the hell out of town as quickly and as as long as possible yeah well that makes sense you like prepare yeah. and hit because that you know do in a band that's doing the thing that's yeah, that's, that's how you know you're doing it right if you're if you're exactly um so one one thing i found interesting um so like as a sax as a horn player like i've had a couple conversations with a, a few of my friends and uh, i'll ex like they'll approach it in like a very kind of and it makes sense a vocal way, like mm -hmm. how they think about it, and like even like their breathing exercises, and like or not exercises, but just approaches like breathing in from the diaphragm, and and like being really conscious of how something fits like vocally. So like with a group with like three colors, and kind of like seeing these guys write songs and express themselves, and being able to sing and play, and then uh, moving to a group like Morphine, um, was there like a a different like when you brought your part to it was there more of a a thing that resonated deeper with like with like mark and how like where his vocal register was and like that kind of like space mm. like a sonic, yeah. uh, phrasing i should say well i don't i mean it's interesting i think um so much of it is was is just the process of development you know and 
an opportunity. So for me to be a sax player in a band where I could play pretty much from the beginning of the song to the end of the song and work with whatever I could come up with, it was a lot of room, right? So, uh, you know, it wasn't like play the solo and I'll play the tambourine for the rest of the song. I was part of the integral basis of this, of the creation of, of that, of that bed of that foundation, which would typically be bass drums and guitar. Here we have bass drums and saxophone. So it, for me, it was like, wow, I finally got a chance to really play, you know, and not just have to kind of dance around what other people are, are doing. Uh, I can really put myself into this and, and let her rip and, and just come up with whatever I can come up with. And, you know, it's not to say that Mark had his, you know, uh, suggestions in terms of what he wanted or didn't want. But uh, for the most part, I had a lot of freedom where, you know, and no other band or, or configuration was a saxophone even remotely that prominent, you know. So I, I, had, I had the best of, of best, I guess. Yeah, that's like the space. Like, so when when jumping into like writing with morphine, like, um, I think through the doc, I kind of picked up it. Like Mark kind of would record like his bit with it and kind of just have that space for you. So, right? Is that how that worked, or was it more? Of a it depends. Okay. No, it depend. It depended. Like we would get together and just play, and Mark would roll tape, and we just kept the tapes rolling, and we'd all go home, and then Mark would comb through the tapes, and maybe he came up with three minutes somewhere in the middle, which would had a cool idea, and maybe he'd take that and do some overdubs with it and then next time we would come in he'd say oh I, I worked up that little i worked up the three minutes that was good in that five hour jam Damn. and uh you know here it is and now why don't you try overdub on this or something and you know that's often how it happened and but the kind of the process initially was very fluid and very you know open to coming you know where the process was 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 playing together and and we didn't really have a lot of discussion we just sort of just started playing you know and so just and mark would take out his lyrics and kind of throw his lyrics on whatever the instrumentation was going was happening and see what stuck basically to to be able to comb through your jams that takes a different type of dedication and self-acceptance i'd imagine and a lot of weed and okay there you go because <laughs> man like i don't know to listen to the outtakes of some things or no, I mean it, you gotta cringe, understand. You know. This is this is um, you know this is all new, and we're all we're all you know this is our first basic you know experience with this kind of thing, and the whole process was was something we would just eat up, you know, recording. So you just you know it didn't you, you just couldn't wait to hear the tape at the end of it how what sounded good, and you learned through what didn't work as much mm. as you did through what did. So you you're listening back, you think okay that part I want to do differently, and it really gives you that perspective of being here, you know, your ideas formating, but also um, hearing where that, that idea maybe touched upon what was really the best idea and maybe moved past it because you couldn't, you couldn't harness it at the time, but in, in, in sort of with a perspective, you can step back and say, okay, Oh, there it is. That's the spot. I want to work on that. That's, that's the, that's the gem in this rough here. And it would allow you to kind of build off of build off of what would fall into, um, you know, in an improvisation. That's beautiful because, like, it, I think a lot of 
there's a, I mean, at least working with a lot of kids, I see a lot of people being afraid of any mistakes. But like, yeah, there's that that kind of when you're recording yourself and just hearing yourself back, acceptance of okay, this is where I am, and fine tuning mm-hmm. it. And I think maybe with something like music or like something like art where you're, you can see where it needs to go. And you, you got to really maybe maybe even more more specifically with music because it's less clear. Like with an image, oh, I, I got to redraw the face. You know what I mean? Like, but mm-hmm. with like music, it's like where does it need to go? And you can really kind of fixate on something, and like maybe not focus on like what you did wrong in the sense of that, right. but how close you are for getting this ghost of an idea out of your head. Yeah. No, I, it's, I think it's really important to kind of, you know, when you're working with kids, especially or in development with yourself, you know, not to not to edit and, and not to be afraid of wrong notes. To me, right. that, that my one of my couple of my favorite quotes, like uh, when, you know, Herbie Hancock is talking about playing with Miles Davis and he hits a clam. He considers it a clam. Yeah. And, and Miles is, is playing along and all of a sudden Miles takes what Herbie Hancock did as a clam and just plays something around it or to it or, or and somehow shapes it so that it becomes, it's pulled in as part of the music. It's no longer a mistake. It's, it's, it's just a turn in the road. And, you know, the, the awareness of, of being, having whatever sound you make, um, not, you know, having it have intention. It doesn't have to, doesn't have to be the right note either, you know, but if you, there's only you're only a half step away from whatever the right note would have been and you know it's so being able to play through it i think that one of the earliest lessons i ever got in from you know learning the saxophone as a kid and having a a teacher tell you know tell me as we're playing through an exercise says if you make a mistake just play through it just play through it just keep the tempo and play through it like you like you played it right get you know so in other words stay on top of the time stay on top of the the flow of the song even if you make a mistake, you don't stop and say, oh, I screwed up. You, you have to play through that and you have to recover in a way that um, really can shape the, the sound. And, and you don't, it's not something that has to be something you're afraid of. It's something that is part of the process of learning and part of the process of expression. You know, you can't, it's like uh, you have, you accepted it. You made that sound. It exists. Let's, you know, that's, uh, let's, let's just work with it. Yeah, that's a beautiful outlook of it. Because, like, uh, I think it was, um, I read something, Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of did the same bit, where he would play a wrong note and he would commit to it. And just, yeah. like, and even lay into it more until oh, yeah. resolving to the right note. And that yeah. kind of builds that tension. And then it's yeah. like, oh, they didn't make a mistake. They they meant that. And then it's the Miles yeah. Davis thing. Then it's hip. Then it's the change. That's so right. cool. Um, it's just being in the in the moment. And, you know, and, uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's just music. It's not like it's... Uh, you're not hurting anybody. Right. Right. It's so, it's, I don't, I don't know what it is. I was having this discussion with someone lately. Like why, why, why that is like everyone's so tense to make mistakes. And I don't know if it's because everyone now is digitized and watched or, or canceled for being wrong, you know what I mean? Or whatever Mm. it is. Like a lot of times people are afraid to make mistakes. And what's even worse is they're afraid, they're not even afraid. You don't, learn from it if you're just even afraid to make it you know there's no well, correction yeah. <laughs> like i don't think exactly no one you will not develop if you're afraid to make mistakes because you there's no that is that is the process of development you know you, you have to fuck up to 
you know, to know where uh, the edges are. You know, how you, you can't be, there's no sense, there's no, it's not even fun being you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's boring and there's nothing there. There's no, yeah. the fear of it is, you know, yeah. it's the same as an excitement in a way. Yeah. Um, and, and and the other battle is that voice in your head that keeps yeah. telling you that you suck, you know, yeah. and that you're, that you made a mistake and you're, you're never going to be any good. And, and if that's, if that takes over, then you're doomed, you know, but you, it has to be something about the process that that is engaging enough to keep you going it's like okay i'm not i'm not where i want to be but i do like the process i like learning i like the i'm listening to my son learn now he's learning piano and he's developing you know songs and he's 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 moving along pretty well and you know you have to you have to be able to be willing to to um to fuck up basically so that you know you know where you want to take it Right. It's see more of it's not maybe maybe more of a not of a mistake, but what you can take from a mistake. Absolutely. Um, so failure is the greatest uh it's the greatest uh, you know, teacher, I think. Definitely. That's so cool that he's shedding on piano. How old is your son? He's fifteen. Fifteen? Okay, yeah. cool. That's that's the time where you're trying to find stuff out, man. That's like that's exciting. Yeah, it was fun. The other night we jammed with a friend of mine, just jammed, jammed on some reggae songs, and he was just, you know, he was just doing the bubble on the piano, and it was like, that was a very proud moment for me. That's awesome. Was it uh, covers or just jams? It just a, yeah, just a little jam that we are doing. Nice. Um, so w- throughout this kind of process, when like was it when Good was kind of put together that you guys kind of like found – like this is the vibe of morphine at the moment or like was it post that was it like kind of more for a cure for pain like this is really where we're at well you know i don't know if we're it, i think it was well, in some ways it was the minute we played together i can okay. remember being in mark's or mark's apartment and just he you know that first time we came over i brought my horn and he played his one string at the time and i played my baritone and he was singing and there was sort of the, the, the triad of his bass, my baritone and his voice that just formed like, wow, this is, this is a, this has some potential. I think the, the, the I always remember it as, as being a, a sort of a pinnacle moment because there was a sound in that room that um, was, a, you know, comprised of some of its parts in a way that was larger than any one of us had and cr- could create. And uh, I think that we under, both understood the potential Mark, I think, had a better idea of what that potential was capable of, and he, uh, you know, to me, it was like, oh, this sounds fun. Let's uh, we should, we should do this again. And Mark was like, no, this is going to be a band, and we're going to make a record. And we're going to go on road, and we're going to, you know, damn. I think Mark, yeah, Mark was already his his the wheels were already turning in his head. That's that. It's interesting because um, there's this a uh, uh, a serotonin when when people sing together, sing together. I can talk. Um, mm-hmm serotonin's released and like it's this this chemical that releases joy or not serotonin um oxytocin dopamine oxytocin uh, dope. but dopamine too but oxytocin is particular when someone's in love with somebody or when someone sings together um it, it's a special type of connection and like that eureka moment when a band kind of just like fits together and knows that it's bigger than them it's mm-hmm. that it's like it's that it's so much of that and that's so cool like that it's at that moment it's not like a completion of a thing or like a a turning of a page but it's the instant like the downbeat stops you know and 
whoa, mm. that's so cool. Um, so getting like, like as far as the, the process of like morphine, right? As far as like writing music and like um, playing together, was it always kind of that relaxed type of feel, or like mm. uh, at least until like um, like swimming, right? That was when stuff got a little more difficult. But like as far as like leading up to that, these songs just kind of came out and right, or was it more of a, a grinding process of trying to like fill in Mark's ideas with or fill in Mark the spaces Mark left that fit the tone of the song? Like, um, well, you know, I don't know, it's hard to say. I think, um, there's always elements of, um, you know, consternation with any collaboration. I think, you know, you're, you're, people have to make uh, compromises and just in terms of your own, you know, personal uh, stuff and <clears throat> being in a band in that collaborative environment, um, it's certainly not going to be just a walk in the park every, every time. But um, I always felt that we, what mattered most to us was the music and that no matter what we could, that's what mattered. So whatever we happen to be playing, that was what mattered. And that's, you know, to, to do the best we could each time we were either rehearsing or recording just to try to breathe life into into an idea and see how far it could go and see what you could bring to it. It was always, each time we played, it seemed like that uh, that lay before us as a as a as a roadmap. It's like you can you know it's there's an open end to it you know. But it, it, not not to say that we didn't argue or we didn't have uh, disagreements or personality conflicts. All that stuff happened too. And at times um, it was tougher to um, to create, tougher to be, you know, collaborative. But um, I think we we managed to navigate it um, up until the end. Because like with the the night, like a uh, sonically listening to that record, it sticks out in like a, a really really like badass way. Like because it. These the, the records that came before it kind of like seem like the development of character of who who morphine is and like and then that record it seems like it was branching in this different direction. There was all these different genres kind of fused in with like mm. the genre that is morphine, which is like I think is an artistic uh, expression to have your own sound is like everyone's goal. Um, is that is that something that kind of like past like swimming and like into the night or into night was like a, a a goal or an idea or were you guys just listening to more types of music and trying to incorporate it yeah i think mark was really stretching out he really <clears throat> um wanted to deliver for this new record label dreamworks and he was working very closely with lenny warnaker who was kind of a mentor for this this record and i think he was um feeling the pressure to deliver something that was going to put us into the next level and put us into the next league. And also I think after like swimming where we, we kind of hit a little bit of a, a lull in terms of our, you know, of what the, the press thought of it, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't well received necessarily. And, you know, we got a lot of criticism around, you know, sounding like ourselves, which is always, bonkers. which is kind of funny, you know, yeah. So, but anyway, I think Mark uh, really wanted to kind of try to um, push that envelope and, and, and open up the arrangements, open up the instrumentation, bring in strings and work with a, a wider palette. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a lot of pressure to, to like 
you know, make the Sergeant Pepper in a way, you know what I mean? So, um, so that was a tough, that was a tough go. Cause there was a lot of, you know, we, we started with Paul Coldry and Sean Slade and then that we ended up scrapping that and starting over again. And there was a lot of tension between Billy Conway and, and his role. And then when Jerome eventually came in with both he and Billy playing drums, we, 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 you know, at that point start to, to kind of round the corner and, and come up with uh, the goods for that record. And when we finished mixing, you know, it was a very long, arduous process, but I can remember Mark being very pleased with what the result was for the first time. I'd seen him really happy in a while. And, and it was maybe a month later, we were on the road <clears throat> going to Europe. Uh, and that's, and then yeah. that, then he died. Was it a, that's it. the double drumming part of that process of that record is super interesting. Um, like in it, I found uh, Billy and Jerome's like c- partnership in this band in, in, in morphine is like, I, 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 you know, so many people have egos and like, can't, can't get past that. That's, uh, it's a beautiful thing that like those guys can support each other like that and focus on one group and like, I don't. That's a really cool. Oh yeah. That's well. You badass. can't you, you can't say enough good things about Mr. Conway, who who one of the most egoless people I've ever known in my life. Who who was only um, desire was to serve the music and beyond anything, and, 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 and without any real concern for his own uh, role in it. He, the music was what's most important to him, and. Both he and Jerome have always been friends and shared drumming, you know, ideas and gear and and supported each other. So they were always very close. So the idea of him coming in and the two of them working together was pretty seamless and made a lot of sense because it had been something they would do anyway. They would get, you know, Billy would go to Jerome's house and they'd sit across from each other and both playing drums. And so that was something that they had already been accustomed to doing and were, you know, familiar with. So. Um, it wasn't any, uh, it didn't, you know, there was no ego involved at all. It was about what does this song need? And right. that's, that's Billy Conway, 100%. It's beautiful. Um, with High and Dry, so for a while you guys were recording out of the loft, right? But then it became yeah. its own, it became its own thing and like went to the Arts and Armory. So what's right. the whole kind of narrative of that? Uh, well, um, Okay, so after Mark passed away, we tried to maintain the loft where he lived and where we recorded, dubbed High and Dry, which was a fifth floor uh, loft space in Cambridge. And um, Andrew Mazzoni, um, RIP, uh, and Billy Conway and myself, um, basically looking at this space with all of Mark's stuff and all, you know, this grand piano and all the recording gear. Um, decided, well, let's see if we can keep this space alive. And we were able to do it up until 2008 when the combination of difficulty with a landlord plus the financial collapse of 2008 hmm. uh, made it uh, pretty impossible to stay there. And at the same time, the, the folks from the Middle East had just bought this amazing building in Somerville called the Armory. And they were looking for tenants and they had a basement space that uh, initially we thought would be great not only for, for the studio, but would give us more autonomy. We wouldn't have to deal with a crazy landlord. And, uh, you know, w- we could also start what was a plan 
at the time to um, create a, a Mark Sandman Music Foundation. And uh, it was just bad timing um, mm -hmm. for the most part. 2008 was probably the worst time to come up with a nonprofit uh, foundation because nobody was nobody was interested in in, in donating or you know. so that that kind of went out the window and we just tried to stay make it a studio and and then Andrew passed away and then Billy moved to Montana and I was left with this studio and which with no real need for one and uh, I ended up just sort of um, bequeathing that to uh, our favorite engineer producer Steve uh, Pete Weiss. He, t he held on to it for a year and then realized how, you know, it was, just wasn't tenable, the idea of having a big studio space. I mean, people are now going, you know, creating their home studios and more music is being made in smaller spaces. The need for a large studio space was becoming less uh, and less necessary, particularly for my purposes. So I, I sort of just backed out. And and then now I, now I believe that the same is called... Uh, Moon something studios and I think they they're still working there and they, they have some of our gear that would just would just allow them to hold on to sick that's a, like because I um I, I've seen in 2009 I, I saw this show with state radio and I was helping mm -hmm. out with their nonprofit the calling all crows um and that was like the kind of like annual thing was at the arts and armory and mm -hmm. uh wandering around that basement on accident you know trying to figure out how to get in and like but yeah. that's, it's a beautifully that's a cool space and like it's a bummer it didn't it was bad timing because like that sounds like a really awesome like um non-profit because like i read up on some of it being like uh, offering kids like chances to experience music and learn how to convey and like play and record yeah. themselves so uh, yeah. at least at least it's still going well, we we did what we could. We did what we could within the community. We had like the Somerville High School band came in and recorded. We had uh, various programs. I tried a program where I had um, kids come in and just and just would set up instruments and just kind of let them try to create their own things and you know encourage them to to try different things. And so we did what we could, but it was it was um, for me personally, it was really hard to to be involved um, and still have, you know, have my own family that, that, that there were young kids at the time that needed attention. So I couldn't really devote my time to it. Was it in, and playing other gigs too. So like, cause at that time, was that the Twineman? Is that when that project would have been happening? Twineman was like 2002. So 2002. we're still over, we're still over the high and dry space at that time. Okay. Yeah. That's a beautiful name for a band, especially with the, <laughs> coming from the comic and like right. being you and Billy and like being all twined in and like that, yeah. I, like learning the origin of that name, like hits hard. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. So what was, yeah. what was the kind of shift with that project? Was that more of just like coming up with these, right? Because with that project and even with Vapors and Morphine, you guys genre like jump in such a cool unique way and i guess my my questions about uh night was i wanted to kind of expand was that kind of genre like melding that started there something you guys decided to carry into these other projects or was it something that just kind of happened because of the personnel yeah the latter because um initially we started working billy and i were helping with laurie Sargent's solo record and the more we helped the more we re realized that it, it was becoming more of a band effort and that we were 
becoming more of a band than just supporting Laurie uh, on her solo effort. And uh, at some point in the middle of working on her solo record, it, it just uh, morphed into, uh, to use a phrase, morphed right. into uh, Twineman and, uh, as a band. And Laurie was key in, in getting both Billy and I back up and running after losing Mark. I think we were both pretty shell-shocked and the idea of getting back and playing music and Billy's song called Who's Gonna Sing pretty much wraps it up the, the concept like, you know, well, you know, I had a saxophone stuck in my mouth for 10 years. I, I'm not known for singing. Um, Billy Drummer, who, you know, he, he's written many songs on guitar and he's had much more experience with singing than I did. And Laurie, who was an amazing singer, she really pushed us to to uh, to come up front and 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 uh, you know and, and belt one out so to speak. Did she? Uh, so one also kind of did she record on night too? Like there's that female voice in the in some of the harmonies. Yeah, I don't think Laurie's on the night. Okay. In fact, I know she's not. The female vocalists there are Linda Baines, um, okay. Carolyn Kaler, and. Uh, Oh, have to look. There's another singer, but friends of ours who would would uh, maybe Ramona Clifton. I'm not sure, but friends of ours who uh, friends of Marks who we had come in and sing like the background parts, the top floor, bottom buzzer. I think is what you're probably thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of the shift gears in a weird way. Like one thing that's always stuck out to me about your playing is like your tone. Like even if it's like within different groups, like like that that's not, that sounds like sounds like morphine let me look who's on it and I'll, okay that makes sense um and like it may be because i'm a fairly big fan of morphine and listening so i've listened to you guys a lot so i'm kind of got the your tone um sax tone kind of ingrained in my brain but um what like when you what was it like working with les claypool huh les well great man one of one of the best what a great guy Again, can't say enough good things about him. Just exceptional, loving, decent human being. And uh, we got a chance to meet him um, during the Horde tour, Horizons of Rock Developing Everywhere, which was the Blues Brothers uh, festival tour. And uh, Primus was on that stage. And Mark and, and Les, of course, hit it off immediately. And uh, so they're um, you know talking bass and all that so they 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 were like just like brothers from another planet or something initially they just hit it off and uh so you know les has always been incredibly gracious in terms of his uh you know the influence that mark had had and that friendship and he's always gone out of his way to mention mark and his and his uh you know, interviews and he even goes, went as far as putting Sandman on his bullet mic, you know, and, and I, from what I understand, tells, yeah. tells a story about how Mark's mic influenced him to getting, getting a mic and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and then after Mark died, we, uh, we had Les came up and recorded, a uh, Honey White cause they were doing Honey White, Primus was doing Honey White. So he, we got him to come up and we're in the process of making a tribute record that never really saw the light of day, but, um, Les's uh, contribution, um, I think, is was we captured on film when we were recording at the Armory. In fact, and he was great. He was just so gracious. He had a day off in between shows. He was in Boston, and I went and picked him up, and 
you know, he came out, he hung out and just, uh, you know, the Colonel. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, we kind of like, so in three colors, when you're opening for Billy Bragg, did you meet Joe Strummer then? Or did no, he, that was did later. He... Okay. So what was that like? Cause Joe's one of those guys too. Yeah. Joe was, Joe was amazing. Another, you know, salt of the earth kind of guy who just of the people, you know, from my interaction, which was limited, but we had uh, morphine played Glastonbury, uh, I'm sure 90 something, 93 something. And, um, he was just hanging out at Glastonbury. We, we did like an 11 o'clock AM show, which in itself was pretty scary, but, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> the sun was very hot and we went out after our set and just was walking around the fields and me and mark mark had his morphine hat on and sunglasses. this guy comes up dressed in a in a like a an arab sort of headdress and the flag and you know comes up and says hey you're that guy in morphine and mark goes yeah he goes well, i'm joe strummer come on just like that you know <laughs> that's amazing and yeah and i happened to be there with my polaroid i took a picture of the two of them and uh, he invited us to come hang out with him and and chrissy hind apparently who had huh. they were they were camping uh on the on the you know in the ground somewhere he said yeah just look for my ranchero with a huge rastafarian flag on it you, just, you know it's over there come on by and unfortunately we did, we did not get a chance to, to to take him up on that offer but uh, after Mark died, we were making a documentary that didn't see the light of day. But the scene that we we got with him, his interview, we we were able to get and use for uh, for Mark uh, Schumann's interview uh, documentary called uh, Journey of Dreams. And he was playing with the Muscaleros, Muscaleros, yeah. yeah, I'm not saying that right, but uh, he was playing in Boston, and we were able to get backstage, and he was very generous and you know giving us the interview and telling that story of, of running into him in glastonbury and i mean he's just a gracious man you know just very very gracious guy and was very kind to give us the time of day and speak so kindly of mark you know that's beautiful joe strummer is like just like one of those inspirational guys then like to get his blessing on the thing that's so cool oh, oh man <laughs> no, so cool. it's just like you could just you know use expression i could have died then you know but it was one of those things where, and then I think later after the gig, we all went out to um, JJ Foley's on on uh, Kingston Street and uh, and just sort of watched Joe, you know, hold court at the bar, surrounded by a horde of like you know, Southie boys, and <laughs> just they were just then he just took it all in and grabbed everybody by the around the shoulders and was just uh, like a, a man of the people. That's amazing. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine Joe walking in any bar without that happening. Yeah, no, no, without a doubt. It's a, and a great gentleman and, and uh, just, you know, he just knew who he knew where he stood. It seemed like he was he was who he was. You know, yeah. there was no there was no facade. There was no there was no uh for the word, but yeah. Um, Joe Strummer. So like when with recording uh, Fear and Fantasy, was this a was this so are you are you using high and dry esque stuff like or do you have your own space that you guys use for recording this new record? Uh, well, we use two studios, Pete Weiss's studio, Verdant, which is up in uh, Vermont. And we went up and did basics there and then came back with a hard drive. And I have uh, my home studio 
um, at my house where I did a lot of overdubs there. And, uh, you know, um, so we'd, Mark Jeremy would come over with his guitar, the banjo would do some overdubs and we wouldn't think about it for a while. And it went on like that for years. And until we got to a point where, uh, we were ready to finish it up. And at the same time, Jerome left the band and we acquired Tom Airy to take Jerome's place. And with, with Tom's arrival, we sort of had a new kind of energy and uh, decided that we needed to go back in and finish this record. So we went in to uh, Dave Wessner's studio um, and finished that side with a bunch of new songs that we had worked up with, with uh, Tom. Hmm. And uh, that's, and once again, took those basics back to, to my place and do our overdubs there. Cause like, that's, that's crazy that it's, it's that, distanced uh, in between time because it flows together like it does this really cool genre hop but it kind of gets that dream thing you kind of jump in with um like it, it it doesn't sound like it was like recorded years apart yeah no I, it well i guess we didn't develop that much in the, in the interim <laughs> <laughs> i didn't mean it like that i mean like it sounds like it like it was a through line thought out like narrative um, yeah even well, like, I guess we, we fooled you. Ha-ha. <laughs> and it's cool the um, Treat or Right cover you guys threw on it. Doreen, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a fun one. And the uh, vocals were recorded um, in a live set that we had done. And uh, we asked the uh, participants to, you know, to help us. So we, we did it a few times uh, and, and recorded them. So we And then flew that into the, into the session. Oh, that's rad. That fits. That had to be hard. It's hard enough to get a group vocal in a booth. <laughs> right. No, it worked out perfectly actually, and yeah. uh, they were everyone was fair game, and uh, was into it. Beautiful. Um, so Dana, thank you so much for taking all this time to chat with me. I've been a fan of your music for for years, so I was very excited to get a response back. So thank you. This has been awesome. Oh yeah. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for taking an interest, and don't be a stranger. <laughs>